If one of the hardest things to figure out these days is what to watch next, first of all, congrats. Second of all, you should check out HBO Max. Discover something new to watch on HBO Max like Lovecraft Country, the new HBO series from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams that's got everyone buzzing. Plus, HBO Max is the only place you'll find new binge-worthy Max originals like Selena Gomez's new cooking show. You heard that right. Selena Gomez's Learning to Cook, from some of the world's best chefs, no less. Find your next favorite all in one place on HBO Max. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Cellular. Let's talk about your cell phone carrier. When you think about your plan, does what you're getting feel fair? When it comes to staying connected, don't settle. When you switch to U.S. Cellular, not only do you upgrade to fair, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's fair. Learn more at uscellular.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, and this is the best of Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play excerpts from several of my interviews with social capital founder Chamath Palihapitiya. The three sections you're about to hear are from March 2016, August 2017, and March of this year. We'll start with a section of the 2016 interview. As I mentioned, this is one of our favorite episodes in the past five years, so you're listening to a rerun. But Vox Media will be bringing you something new on this feed later in the year, so please stay subscribed. You can still hear me twice a week on my other podcast, Pivot, with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. Head over there for fresh, fun, smart conversations about tech and media's wins and fails and predictions for what's coming next. Just search for Pivot in your podcast app of choice. But now, here's my interview with Chamath Palihapitiya from March 2016. So you were at Facebook, you were working on the phone, their Facebook phone, which didn't work, which yeah. didn't work. Why didn't that work? And then I want to get onto what you're doing now, because I really it, like to talk I mean, about it. I mean, most, it mostly didn't work because of my ego, I think. Okay. But if I had to kind of say, like, there was a 12-month period of, like, just concentrated super creativity in terms of, like, how at least I felt for myself I was connecting the dots— that was that period. Um, and in it, I was able to take an entire group of people, really just like the best of the most creative kind of like early folks at Facebook. And I really convinced them about the need to build not just a software, software. platform, but software and hardware together. Right. And what's funny, and that this was in 2010. This um, is after Android, after iPhone. Had just launched. Right. And so the window was still open, actually, for us mm-hmm. to have done something. A few months ago, I was actually at an event, and I ran into the industrial design firm, Yves Behar, mm-hmm. uh, at Fuse Project. And he's like, dude, I have, I still have one of the phones. And so he ran upstairs oh, to his wow. studio, and I saw it. And even to this day, I look at it, and I'm like, it was just, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was just groundbreaking. Why, why did Facebook miss that one? I think I missed it because I made it difficult for Mark to say yes. And um, I think what happened was, like, somewhere along the way— I don't know whether it was like I got high on my own supply. I got, you know, I had traded all the capital, again, mm-hmm. social capital, mm-hmm. all the capital that I had built up at Facebook into making a bet. But what I didn't calculate was the cost of what that meant at that point in that company's life cycle. And specifically what I mean is when push came to shove, I had been negotiating with Intel and AT&T and all this stuff, and we had this amazing plan in place. It still would have cost Facebook a billion dollars to do what I wanted to do which was a big bet. It was a hugely disruptive idea and go-to-market. The mm-hmm. go-to-market was very expensive. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to lie. But I thought combined with how 
brilliant the software and the and the hardware could have been, it really would have been an Apple iPhone-like moment. Mm-hmm. The problem was Facebook was still private, and it barely had a billion of cash in the balance sheet. It's a wrong and, timing. Well, it, he, Mark would have had to go public a year earlier. And I think in hindsight, he would probably say it probably wouldn't have mattered which year we went public. But at the time, it was a really important thing, and there was this whole culture developing in Silicon Valley about not going public and being private and you know, all this stuff, which ultimately I consider now window dressing. Right. Um, but at the time, I think if I think if I had made myself more trustworthy um, in terms of the reasons why I wanted to do it, because I think there was a part of it where, like, I was like, wow, this really, would really validate how, like, that I'm good. Mm-hmm. And so I think my insecurity cropped up. And really what I should have been saying is, Mark, you need to do this, and you need to take this out, and you need to own this. And Did think, they miss the boat on that, not having a phone? They ended up yeah, having a lot of the same app, of course. really critical no, apps. I mean, like, look, Facebook has done an exceptional job, okay? It, it, in fact, I, I, I tweeted this out, but it's the fastest company to get to a $300 billion market cap. Mm-hmm. It took Google 15 years. It took Microsoft 25. It took Apple 35. It took Berkshire Hathaway almost 50. It took Facebook 12. It's amazing. The problem is that the half-life of getting there is also the half-life in having it destroyed. Right. And so right now, if you think about Facebook's execution, the execution is quite powerful and it makes a lot of sense, which is the following. And this is my strategy, Mm -hmm. articulating it as an outsider now, having been gone Mm -hmm. five years. If you look at a day, a day is compartmentalized into, you know, probably three major blocks of time. There's the time in which you're sleeping and doing all kinds of sundry activities. And then there's the amount of time you're working and then the amount of time you're playing. And I think that for roughly for most people, that playing section is a four to six hour block. And I I don't mean playing in like some pejorative sense. Mm -hmm. I mean not working. Not working. And I think what Facebook is, is the 600 pound, is that the term? 600 pound, 800 pound? Gorilla, 800. The 800 pound gorilla in that four hour block of time. And I think what they've done really deftly is every time a new lily pad emerges, that sucks up time in that quadrant, they go and they buy it. Instagram is working, they buy it. WhatsApp is working, they buy it. Snapchat was working, they tried to buy it. Oculus is essentially a bet of that. Mm-hmm. Again, so so they're very good at monopolizing a person in that four to six hour window. The thing that it doesn't allow them to do though is now think about this as a 24 hour problem. So they're not in the workspace. They're not in the workspace. They're not in the, you know, but then the real question to ask ourselves is, well, why define the problem as a 24-hour problem? So if you look at a Google, Google's approach to answering that is totally different. They're like, who cares about the 24-hour? They're like, what's the hardest and most interesting problem I could solve? And I'm going to throw money at it. Robots, great. Balloons, fantastic. Autonomous cars, wonderful. Search, video. And so they're much more haphazard and scattered. Mm-hmm. So for Facebook, I think what it would have done it is created more dimensionality in staying relevant. Right. Because they would have not just been at the application level of the stack. They would have been everywhere. They would have been everywhere. Right. And so it would have given them the ability to have more variables. Can they do that now? I think it's too late to, I think that's maybe Oculus is a bet that that can happen. I actually think it's too late. I think the business as it is, though, is still a profoundly important business. Facebook will be a trillion dollar company in 10 or 15 years. But it it will be a constrained Consumer. approach to value creation, and that and those constraints will allow you to create enormous value. But those constraints will probably also put that value under duress when Snapchat gets to scale, or the N plus one version of a company who doesn't want to sell gets mm-hmm. to scale. 
basically in the totality of all this, I really think w- what we're really speaking about is like there are like these two companies that I think are basically playing for the future of progress. Which is? Facebook, again, though in a very nominal definition of time. Mm-hmm. Google with a much more amorphous kind of like throw a bunch of shit against the wall. And I think like, you know, uh, and, and this may sound grandiose, but I think that's where social capital plays. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we compare ourselves to them all the time where our business model more and more looks like Alphabet versus Facebook Inc. Oh, I see. You've talked capital. about that. How did you get to – so you weren't want, you didn't want to be a traditional venture capitalist. You leave Facebook. Phone doesn't work out. You leave. What did you think you were going to do? Your parents are now freaking out. Oh, no, now, made my some parent, money. now my parents – You made parent, some money. Now I've made some cash. Yeah. Well, the, the first little while was purely fun. Yeah, you did some rich guy things. Did some rich guy things. You know, bought a piece. a piece of the Warriors, you know, floated around, uh, took a month off. I moved to Las Vegas. I played a bunch of poker, mm-hmm. you know, basically like fun things. That was just rewarding my own psyche. And then afterwards, the big thing that I wanted to figure out was, and I, I don't know if you remember at the time, but right at the time it was the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. And right before that, a year and a half before that, I think it was in 2010, I may be getting the dates wrong, there were actually riots in Paris. And then there were the shootings in, or, or the terrorist attacks in London. And, um, you know, what I had also realized along the way was I didn't want to be like some bitter minority guy who was like, oh, I'm getting fucked. Mm-hmm. I didn't get fucked. I got mm-hmm. really lucky. Mm-hmm. But I empathize with that struggle. I empathize with the struggle of women. I empathize with the struggle of other minorities. I empathize with the struggle of, you know, LGBT. And the reason is because we all have to deal with signaling that's telling us here's a pathway and you just don't fit the pathway. Mm-hmm. And so you have a choice. My choice was to get enough capital where I could opt myself out. But honestly, for every person like me or like you that's famous and can basically make create a safe harbor for your minority class or for my minority class, there are all these people who are still trapped. So they may resonate with you, but they're not empowered to get out. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of came to a head where I was like, okay, if I'm going to do something – what are the things that I can do well and what do I want to accomplish? And to be really honest with you, um, there's a very capitalistic tendency that I have, which is like I want to win and I want to win at scale and I want to prove that I'm one of the smartest people around and that whatever the game is, as the game gets more and more complex, I want to win the game. I'm not a corpo fucking execute type. Mm-hmm. And the well, you more, have been. The more, yeah, I have been. Yeah. But like the more the complexity and the stakes get higher, I actually think I can get better and, and I'm, I like that challenge. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be Steph Curry. I don't, it's not good enough to hit threes from 29 feet. I mm-hmm. want to be the guy that can hit consistent threes from 40 feet right? because that's a dagger. And when you're that guy, you mm-hmm. are unstoppable. And the reason why that's powerful is then you get a bully pulpit where when you say something – It matters. It matters and it becomes the de facto expectation. And so for me, it's like, Wow. The thing that I really believe in is like, and you know, we're like wherever, whenever I have like issues with relationships with people, even when like my wife thinks I'm a total jerk, it's because I I sometimes get very Darwinian and I tend to think that like whoever wins the race should just win. But then I realize how amazing would it be if everybody can run the race? And you're like, well, what does that mean? And I'm like, well, literally that's what it means. Like what if on every single fucking dimension it's the best of the best won everything. What if like the entrance into Harvard was a pure meritocracy, total blind admission? You could not put your name, right? Mm-hmm. You could basically do some things where 15 million kids all around the world, well, guess what? Every fucking kid that went to that school would not be the kids that go into that no, school right they now. No, would not, yeah. Okay? 
because those kids know in their heart of hearts that they're imposters. They're there because somebody pulled the string, somebody wrote an essay, somebody packaged them. The best of the best are not at Harvard. The best of the best are bumbling around. At best, maybe at IIT. They could be at Waterloo. But they're most likely working in some fucking cement factory in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the disruption of upheaving society's value system became Mm all-encompassing. Because I think that solves all these problems. It solves people wanting to attack London, people going on shooting rampages in Paris, people lighting themselves on fire, people protesting in— So you're um, talking about true equality where it's— yeah, but just because it wouldn't it be so interesting to see what happens? Mm-hmm. I can't tell you what. Maybe nothing would change, but it would be amazing. You would, you know. So how Trump, do you achieve Sanders, that? So, you, so you start a venture firm. I mean, an investment firm. Or what do you call social and capital? It's not precisely any of those things. Well, social capital. What we say is, I mean, we we have a mission, and what we talk about is that we're trying to advance humanity by solving the world's hardest problems, and that's like a lot of words. But basically, what it means is there are systems that are highly asymmetric today, that you can level with technology. So meaning make them totally symmetric. And in making things symmetric, you get more people to the starting line, and then you can run races. And as it turns out that doing this, it can also make you literally trillions of dollars. So for me, I'm like, well, in all this technological upheaval, there's going to be massive wealth created. It's going to get allocated to somebody. Better people with a moral imperative who have a sense of equality and a sense of social justice than a bunch of rich douchebags that are already rich, mm-hmm. number one. Two, in doing that, you work on the most interesting things. Three, you actually have a better chance of building them because people are actually, you find out, more interested in working on those than the shitty other companies that they'd be working at. Mm-hmm. And then you create a system that is like interesting because you don't know what the outcome is. It's not predetermined. And so that's what social capital is. We started as a venture firm because – it allows us to use money and to invest capital on things that can be really enormous and really impactful. And it allows us in success to define for people incrementally what those really important, really valuable things are. So tell me about a couple of them. What to you are the most important? So I'll, I'll give you a couple of okay. examples of All things right. that we've done. I mean, you know, we've done these amazing things like you know, I mean, we're investors in Dropbox, Box, Yammer, Slack, amazing companies. But along the way, all of that confidence allows us to do uh, – I'll give you two examples. Okay. So in cancer, four and a half years ago, we meet these two guys running a company called Syaps, S-Y-A-P-S-E. Couldn't get funding. For two and a half years, couldn't raise a single dollar. Why? Because it's not the next social networking app. We ripped the money in after two days of work because we had been – thinking about cancer and mm-hmm. precision medicine. Four years later, these guys now treat 10% of cancer patients' lives. They finished this massive longitudinal trial at one of the top five cancer hospitals in the United States on tens of thousands of patients. And they found before them, 75 to 85% were getting the wrong drug and dosage, mm-hmm. 15% extra cost. And what they were able to do is cut those out to zero. And then if you were a stage three cancer patient, they doubled your life expectancy. And I look at that and I'm like, why is that a leveler? It's because some mother or father is not going to die of cancer. They're going to be around for their kids. Those kids are not going to either have to drop out of school, get some shitbag job to pay for these crazy healthcare expenses. They're going to be able to stay on track. They're going to stay focused. And that kid's going to get to the starting line. We're never going to get a single ounce of credit for that. Mm -hmm. Who cares? 
But that company is an enormously valuable company because it has this high moral value and it has tangible economic value. I started a company in diabetes, same thing. Right. We did this thing in education. I remember you talked about it. Yeah, we did this thing in education called Brilliant. We are indexing the world's smartest kids, and guess what you find? They're all over the fucking place. Mm-hmm. They're hiding Some in plain sight. Some people call that talentism. It's around. It's everywhere. I think that's the word I listened and, to recently. And, and the internet is a leveler. This girl, who would otherwise be in fear in Pakistan of like genital mutilation or getting married off at 13 – can sneak to a computer, get on a web browser and demonstrate how great she is in STEM. And now we know who she is. And at least we know who she is, step one. Step two, we got to figure out how to extract her and get her here and send her to a great school and have her work at a great company that we care about versus like getting married off and just having children. So another business that I think is going to make an enormous amount of money over time, because again, they are in control of human capital Mm -hmm. of the smartest young people but they're doing it by solving a really high order moral thing. So I just think there's so many of these things to do. That's fun because then, again, I'm solving my own weaknesses. You work on things that keep you really morally disciplined. And then you set your trajectory 40 years into the future. And then you don't get distracted. That said, you still are in normal companies too. I mean, Slack is not doing this or Box or any of the others. You're, but you're if in we this. weren't in those, it'd be much harder for us to do those. That's what I mean. Things. That's what I mean. So yeah. you do both. You have you to be both. in those both. Because again, I think like as an example with Slack, Slack is completely changing the face they of work. I mean, they are going to destroy email. They are going to build a network effect across all companies. And what it's going to do for people is something that I think is so important, which is they're going to give you back time. Mm-hmm. And in this world, we're like— There's so many interesting stories off of Slack, even how people converse in the workplace. For bad or worse, I was thinking the other day, you know, some people— I think Slack dramatically diminishes politics. Really? That's interesting. Because it's documented, and it's a living document that never goes away. And so it's hard to have—you know, you know, like when you send, like, an email to, like, thousands of people or hundreds or tens of people or— A CC. And then then people CC, and then some people little R and reply all. and (laughs) You strip out all of that nonsense because it has to be a single unified thread. Mm -hmm. It completely streamlines. No, no, it's a fascinating company. But my point is that, like, by doing that, it just gives us more confidence that when nobody else will touch the education idea, we can rip the money in. Right. Because, like, whatever. Okay, we can afford to lose $10 million because Slack's going to make us $4 or $5 billion. Right, right. That was an excerpt from my March 2016 interview with Chamath Palihapitiya. We're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back after this to play some of the follow-up interview I did with him in August of 2017. Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. 
At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com. So what's been happening in the venture situation here in Silicon Valley? It's like rocked by sexual harassment scandals, which is one end of the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, you know, criticized for a lack of diversity, which this seems to solve or, or yeah. is a step in that direction because the way they make decisions on who they invest in and who they get as partners. What is happening and what do you think has to happen? What do you, when you look at across the spectrum of things? I think there's a huge sort of rude awakening that's going to exist in the venture landscape and it goes along the following lines. Most of the practitioners, exactly as you said, I think are dated both in their philosophy, their framework and their capability right? Uh, these are people that grew up in a different time where the social signaling of where they went to school mattered enough where they could get these very prestigious, quote unquote, prestigious jobs. The problem is that it's not a prestigious job. It's a critical job. And so the people who get prestige versus the people who get criticality are very different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. So the rude awakening is going to be the following, which is that when you look across the venture landscape, you have a bunch of people who are frankly ill-suited to do what they're doing. And so as a result, they feed off historical bias, they kind of focus on the things that they know the best, which will result ultimately in a bunch of marginal investments. Right, most of which will go nowhere. Most of which will go nowhere. At the same time, what happens is the public markets provide them a, provides the investor, in this case the mm -hmm. LP, a very reasonable way of actually getting almost the same return, if not in many cases, an equivalent and better return. And so now the LP in these funds have to ask the following question. Well, I can lock up my money for what is effectively, Nine you know, years. Yeah, 10, 12 years now because these companies take longer to gestate and get basically the same return I can for being in a highly liquid public market security. So from any sort of logical risk-based assessment for a limited partner, I think what happens is there will be a culling. Right. And any of these folks that can't have differentiated returns, you are not going to take on the risk of being a liquid, especially if you think about in a world that is probably going to become more complex, more dynamic, so you want to be less stable. You want to have massive amounts of liquidity because you don't know when the dislocation is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so in a world like that, I think like all of these kind of like middling also ran firms go away. Right. The $200 million firms are higher, even the higher. Oh, no. I, I think it's irrespective of AUM. It's just yes. folks whose whose approach is sort of just dated and not right. current. Come to our office. Enjoy our khakis. You know, we're, you know, we're nine people. We're going to try to raise the next fund. We're going to chop it up amongst ourselves. Um, it's about us. Mm -hmm. um, and we, you know, we make the best decisions we can, which again is okay. But again, I think LPs really start to push back. Separately, what happens is you're going to have different folks who have different approaches. I suspect actually the, the most disruptive entrant into the venture capital landscape can probably be Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. Why? Because most of the businesses are built on top of them. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't take much logic to actually view a world where Amazon's like, well, I'm selling, I'm renting you the, you know, computer, I'm renting you the storage, I'm renting you the algorithms, I'm renting you all of this stuff. Oh, I'll just give you some money along the way as well. Right. And they do that, right. you know, with credits, but they don't really take it to the next level. That's something across- And that's not, that's not corporate venture capital, no. No, this would be like, it's almost like a function- Because they buy Amazon. these companies anyway. No, it's, it's a function in AWS. Like it, right. this should just should be a thing in a marketplace. It's like, mm -hmm. here's your cost of capital. And there's probably a place on a website you can go to mm -hmm. where you know every third party seller on Amazon can understand his or her 
uh, quality, you know, how are they relative to all the other sellers on Amazon, mm -hmm. which is probably how Amazon decides right. how to lend to them. So it's not an artisanal business. And by the way, Amazon has lent billions of dollars to these companies. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between them and a venture capitalist? Nothing. Right. So except they do it systematically, quantitatively, unemotionally. Right. 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 And so then as a result, they get a lot more people in the game. So my whole point of view here is that in the next five to 10 years, all of that comes home to roost. Massive balance sheets, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple. Microsoft, potentially Apple, all the Chinese big internet companies, folks like us who are providing key insight based on some amount of proprietary data, whether it's gleaned from AWS or whether it's gleaned from server logs that you proactively give to an investor. And then everybody that isn't that, the LPs say, well, wait, you have, a non, you have an undifferentiated product, which forces then you to invest in the marginal outcomes, which now ties up my money for a shitty return relative to what I can get in the public markets. And so that's what happens to venture capitalists. Right, right. And then they go, because it's treated artisanally. There's a special sauce they bring if you have this particular also venture capitalist. Awesome joke. Yeah. It's a total joke. Yeah. Total, they do like, sell it well. Hindsight bias, navel-gazing bullshit. Yeah. So why, how, how come it works for so long? Because there was never any competition. Yeah. And now there is. Yeah. And also, there was never supposed to be a guy like me with a couple billion dollars. Mm -hmm. That's just not supposed right. to happen. Right, yeah. Because that's the last thing they want. Right. It's some uh -oh. loudmouth kid <laughs> with a lot of money, you know, who frankly is going to build whatever he wants to yeah. build. Right. And enough, I'm not saying I have a lot, but enough credibility to get enough critical people mm -hmm. to get it past that existential product market fit phase. Right. Which we are. Right. And then what happens is all these investors who otherwise were, you know, they were not sure I was a cultural fit for, I wasn't sure they were a cultural fit for, right. they all capitulate. So so it's a little like I'm thinking of Moneyball or whatever when he came in and started doing data to, rather than the gut of the people that watch people on. What's the quote? It's like, you know, it was a Billy Bean quote, like, we're not hiring these guys how they fill out their genes. Like we're right. hiring them for like, you know, a bunch right. of statistical right. things. That Why does that whole gut thing persist? I think now I think now that is more of a physiological uh, bias of men, mm -hmm. which is that there I is knew just a, this guy. There is just a there's a need mm -hmm. to act with bravado, especially when you have power. Mm -hmm. I think men treat power very differently, frankly, than women do. Mm -hmm. And I think men have a very um, kind of like a very hierarchical way in which they impose power. So it's kind of hard power. And uh, I, and I think they love the bravado of that idea of like, oh, my gut told me. Listen, I do believe that like your limbic system is a very powerful. Yeah, this Zuckerberg kid. I knew it at the time. You know, right? but, but it's like the idea that like you just knew it at the time. It's just they kind didn't. of. It's a good didn't. story. Come on. I mean, it sounds cute. Yeah. Nobody knew. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So speaking of that, it leads to bad outcomes such as what's going on with the sexual harassment stuff. How do you solve that? Are you just they just need to go away just like dinosaurs or what? I think that there's a couple things. One is like, you know, when these things happen. So I, I, I actually think like, about, I, I don't know, I, I hope that this first wave of the obvious stuff, I mean, this is a terrible way to describe right. it, but the no, low yeah. hanging fruit of sexual harassment. Okay, right. great. Let, maybe we've dealt with that. Right. Here's what's much more insidious that we I, now have to- Down on the other end. It's all of the conscious and unconscious bias. It's all the little snide remarks. It's all the ways people yeah, are included and excluded. That's the stuff that's super corrosive. Yeah. And so how do you overcome that? Well, one is you have to have people that give a shit. Mm -hmm. And when you see it, you root it out right. fast. And mm -hmm. you act decisively. It does not matter how important that person is, how they've behaved in the past, how much money they've made you. Mm -hmm. You put them on ice and you put them on a path to get better or you kick them out. Mm -hmm. Period. End of story. Number one. Number two is then on the other side of that, you have to have a support infrastructure that creates a different way of giving these 
people an outlet so that they feel supported. So for example, you know, there's so many great people in YPO, mm -hmm. but there's so many great people who don't believe like that's a great fit for them, right? So, you know, do we need other forms of that? Absolutely. Should they be by definition more inclusive? Absolutely. Should they include, you know, people that are not necessarily CEOs so that you get a more inclusive group? Absolutely. These are like obvious things, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if you have that, you have like a mechanism now to like actually support people. And then you have a mechanism to teach people. And then separately, like when you find like these like small edge cases, it's just so easy to let it go. The way that somebody says something, the way that somebody does something, and we all do it. Right. And the question is, can we all now become a little bit more empathetic and say, you know what? We're all going to find ourselves where against something or somebody or some group of people, we all have and carry right. a latent bias. Absolutely. Will somebody else thoughtfully and say, hey, listen, just FYI, blah, blah, blah. And then you learn, and then in the same way you repay that favor in a way that's non-threatening. Right. It, what, what's interesting is they they become real hot button issues. Like, look what's happening at Google with James Damore, and you know who keeps saying one appalling thing after the next every time he's interviewed. So you you can tell me if this is true, and I, and I mean I'm not completely up to speed on this. Mm -hmm. I didn't read it, but my understanding is that he was part of a group where Google actually asked him to write this thing. Is that true? No. Okay. Not that I understand. You know, this reminds me. No, uh, because Google's been one of these places where people just get to say what they want all the time. I mean, I've been in well, meetings where they discuss Sergey's shirt well, and, I, I, and I mean, insulted. So, it, you know, I've been in those early. This reminds me of when at Facebook, I took four months off and I wrote my unified theory of uh, of relativity and uh, no one read it. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> sorry, funny. that didn't happen because I was fucking working. <laughs> So, you know, part of this is like, what, what I mean, like, if I want to understand the views of like social Where's psychology. Where's your memo, Jamath? I mean, You're like, a walking memo. I mean, Jesus Christ, like, I'm working. I know. I get it. I, I know. Uh, no, but they have like nine places for people to do this stuff. Yeah, it's nuts. Google. They do. They just it's get pretty it. nutty. They get to say whatever they want at any time they want. And now they're used to it. And when you actually say, oh, by the way, you can be fired for some of it. Yeah, they I, get I, I have real been, mad. To be honest, like, I have less of an issue with you saying it. It's just kind of like, like, where's the operational control so that you can just bumble around for months working on some random memo? Like, right. Like, right. aren't you supposed to be hard to be an engineer and yeah. code? Yeah. Well, yeah. fucking code. Yeah. Yeah. They, well, they don't think of jobs as jobs, do they? I mean, jobs I are on the side. That's. Jo Listen, you know how many people would want that job? Yep. No, I get it. To code? I get it. Code. Yeah. Then code. Yeah. And then write it on your spare time. Yeah, I guess. It's fairly, it's really, it's very interesting, but how many people came to his defense about that was interesting. And I was sort of like, you, you can say that on the corner of, on Charleston Road, but not right inside of Google. It was interesting. It was an interesting thing how much support he did have until he went sort of alt-right and then, then, then it went off the rails. Yeah, he, he, I think all these people, should ever, we should all be doing our jobs. Shut up, right? Yeah. Just fucking get back to work. <laughs> I mean, I just have no tolerance for this guy. Yeah, they fired him. That's all. Okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, what, what, what is that? Is that like a product of sort of excess in Silicon Valley now? Is that these they get to do whatever they want? They're not doing their. You know, I, I've always equated sort of what I call alignment mm -hmm. to like a tree, right? Alignment in a company is like is like rings of a tree. So if you if you cut down a huge redwood, what you notice is there's like you know many thousands of rings, and that that pretty much sort of like embodies how a company works, which is we're at the center. You have the founders and the core, sort of like hundred mm -hmm. or two hundred zealots, mm -hmm. and they are a hundred percent aligned, right? And when you think about like you know that original group at Google, what a masterclass of technical, yeah. just I mean, yeah, absolutely unbelievable, right? Facebook, same situation, mm -hmm. unbelievable. They're still cohort. together there too, which a lot of yeah. them, yeah, yeah. 
But then as you hire more and more people, you basically have less and less aligned people. Mm -hmm. And then that thousandth ring, which is your 75,000th employee, mm -hmm. they're at best 10% or 20% aligned. Mm -hmm. And what that speaks to is the fact that you just have really a very difficult way of having operational control over values and culture at scale. Mm -hmm. That's really what it speaks to. And so, you know, you start things, for example, like the 20% time was probably for like George Herrick, who if mm -hmm. anybody knows, is an yes, absolute he's genius. He yeah. is he's a superstar of Where superstars. Go? It probably was like where George was like, you know, one day a week, I'm going to code this other thing that also changed right. the world for Google. Right. But by the 75,000 employee, 20% yeah. time is kind of like, oh, you know, I'm going to write memos and <laughs> you know, I'm going to build, you know, I mean, so, yeah. so, so I think there's a decay yeah. that just naturally happens in organizations and it just takes a very special kind of discipline and focus to want to fix it. Right. Um, and I think that's what it really speaks to in the Valley, which is that um, at the end of the day, once these businesses become commercial enterprises, they're like every other business. Right. And they, right. they effectively do decay, which is what causes them to eventually be decay. Sure. But when you're talking about what you're trying to sort of disrupt, I don't want to use the term disrupt the venture, just to change the venture industry, how do you then disrupt this culture? Because, you know, it seems that a lot of this stuff is happening because they don't have anything else to do. Like, it's just like um, go to lunch and harass a woman, like, essentially. Know. Well, one of the things that we really believe strongly in is sort of the power of entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley. So everything that happens here is is, is magical, and it's it's you're you're we're all lucky to kind of be a part of it. But the reality is, the people that are not here tend to be dramatically more earnest and open minded mm -hmm. uh, than the people that are here. Because after some number of years of being in you know being grist in this mill, mm -hmm. you become jaded. Yeah, you're you know? living Westeros. Or, yeah, exactly. Every startup looks great. I've heard of every mission statement possible. Mm -hmm. You become fatigued, mm -hmm. right? And you become a little cynical. Um, and so one of the things we do is we try to go outside because you can find all these really interesting people and if you can celebrate them. And, you know, they'll, they'll, there's like ways in which I think we can do that, which would be really interesting at some point to talk to you about. But yeah. like, that's like some special stuff that I think we You've do. brought in, explain who you brought in, Mark and uh, and- yeah, And then separately, what we do is internally within our organization, we really try to gut check who's at the table. Right. And so what does that mean? Like, for us, we love operators. Mm -hmm. We love folks that have kind of been in the grind doing stuff. We also love folks who have warts, mm -hmm. who have gone through, like, you know, they have lashes on their backs. It mm -hmm. didn't all work, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so you learn things from them. They have a certain kind of humility about them that's really helpful. And then they're more open-minded about the types of people that they're willing to coach and mentor. And then you have a different class of young people that you can bring in and bring into the organization. Um, you know, we just hired this, we just had this amazing data scientist. Her name is Kelly Zhang. And uh, she was at Stanford and she was graduating and, you know, she kind of had her pick of jobs and she was going to go back and do a lot of nonprofit work in Africa. And she had done some amazing work and she's a data scientist, like a star. Um, and we were able to convince her like, hey, give us a shot. And, you know, what we'll be able to do is you'll be able to come and again, help build this knowledge base that helps all kinds of entrepreneurs, including right. these entrepreneurs in Africa. But in order for her to be successful here, we had to onboard her in the right way. We had to give her the right mentor. We had to give her the right visibility. Right. That's tough no, to keeping do. Keeping people is really, it's not bringing them in, it's keeping it's them. It's tough to do. And, right. and I have found that having other operators who have gone through this process, empathize with that struggle, and then they take more care. Um, and they're willing to make sacrifices so that at the edges, you know, like me, Tony, Tony, Mark, Bates. Tony Bates, Mark Mizvinsky, you know, Mike Gaffari, Arjun Sethi, if we had to make sacrifices and compensation to bring somebody in, I think we all would have one would do it instantly. Mm -hmm. 
And I just think like that's like just to know that. It's not we're never going to have to do it, but to know it like it's like, okay, what else will they do that I can count the, count on them to do? One of them is mentorship and guidance. And, and so we as an organization are actually like pretty cool. Like we're mm-hmm. good people. Right. Um, if you do say so yourself. <laughs> I, th- I think we really are. And, and also like, you know, we check ourselves. Like, right. like when shit goes south or there's behaviors that we don't like, we get together, we talk about it and we fix it. Um, and that's also hard. Mm-hmm. You know, we do these all hands and it's just like, they're complicated because we get into these deeply nuanced decisions, you know, and like, for example, like our decisions are really important because the knock-on effects are huge. Oh, well, here's this great business. And we've decided that actually it went from great to not so great. And we had tried our best and we couldn't support them. And, you know, what do we do in these situations? These are complex things. And we have to explain to our team why, mm-hmm. right? The why of how you make these decisions is critical. Mm-hmm. So there's all these things that go into building a good organization we do it, we tr- well, we try to do the best we can internally and then separately. So wh- we try to go outside of Silicon Valley to find these entrepreneurs we can celebrate externally. So why isn't that happening in Silicon Valley? Because it does feel like there's a danger of sort of the, ta- the snake eating its tail at this point. I think it's, like I said, it's easier if you are five, six, seven, eight, nine guys sitting around a table making millions of dollars a year to not fuck with what's working. Right. And really, like, think about it in the following way, Carol. Like, if... You know, if you're an ad salesperson back in like the, you know, early 2000s, you could probably see that your ad sales job was probably going to get impacted by Google and then ultimately Mm -hmm. Facebook, et cetera. Like, let's just say you were selling yellow pages. But the way you make your decision about your career is like the following, I suspect, which is, well, listen, you know, my kids are in sort of like grade eight, grade nine. You know, I got five or six more years. I still think the industry is going to be reasonable by then. You know, I'll get to where I need to be. And I don't really have to contemplate you know, career change. And I can kind of like live the lifestyle I want for the rest of my life, pay for my kids to go to college. There's like all these other things that come into decision making. A version of that, although a much higher class problem, exists among these VCs, which is why they just don't need to. Mm-hmm. They're going to bide their time. And then they're going to get. And they're going to die. Like they're, they're just their firms will blow up. Yeah, I think that about that like Hollywood a lot. Like, why aren't Hollywood changing? Because because th- their career is. So Hollywood getting... is an, a perfect example, right? Yeah. You had a bunch of people, unbelievably ego driven, ego ridden, ego filled, right? Power brokers, power mongers, you know, betrayers, cajolers, like all of these people, sitting on top of what really wasn't a huge industry. It's kind right. of a meh industry. <laughs> Um, but it was, <laughs> but it had like a lot of social capital, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, to be a producer, like meant yeah. something. And then here you have this company of like a few hundred people now, a few thousand people who are like, yeah, I'm just going to charge eight bucks a month and I'm just going to completely fucking blow it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it happens, it happens fast. Mm-hmm. And maybe we're the version of the $8 a month. Right. This is Netflix. Uh, right? yeah, yeah. Netflix we're talking right. about. Right. Yeah. Um, and so- I remember when I kept saying it, but over here, and, and then I realized they liked wearing their suits and their cars uh, and their- and they just liked it, and they weren't going to the change. And they're spots just gonna, with their they're names just on it. And, tap out, yeah. like, and I realized, oh my god, they are. They have like eight years left. They probably will just. They, there's no reason for them to change. You know, ego is a very kind of ego is a very powerful thing, right? So because was, it can empower you to do things, but ego is a very corrosive thing, mm-hmm. which is that it can it it can entrench you in a set of decisions that fundamentally are about outsiders' perceptions of you versus your true north internalization. Right, of or what's if you really want to do much, or maybe you're just lazy. That was from my 2017 interview with Jamath Palihapitiya. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this to play part of my most recent interview with him, conducted in March 2020. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. 
and you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to me about the landscape out there. What's go- what are you doing? First of all, let's check in on Chamath. What is Chamath doing? I'm sheltering in place. Uh, yeah. I've actually been sheltering in place for three weeks. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I didn't really understand the severity of this early on until probably mid-February because, as it turned out, I was in Milan on spring break. Oh, wow. I took my kids to Switzerland, and uh, then we went to Milan, and uh, we started to see the first few cases there, and I started to get really concerned that this was now clearly spreading beyond just a statewide lockdown in China. Mm -hmm. And so when we came back, we started to get our handle on what was going on, and then... um, my girlfriend stayed in Milan an extra week. Wow, okay. And her family runs a pharmaceutical business there. And they basically told us, like, this is going to get pretty serious. And so she self-isolated for two weeks just to be completely safe. And then uh, by the time we were done that, uh, California went into shelter in place. And so uh, we've been home for three weeks, coming up on a month now. Wow. And what made you worried about it at the time? That's, that's actually early for many people. Many the, people hadn't been paying attention until just recently. You know, I, I, I didn't know how to think about case counts or, you know, CFR or anything like that, or even the are not all these terms that none of us knew before, but now they're going to be seared into our consciousness. Um, but I did see the Chinese government react, and I thought, these are not people that overreact. Mm -hmm. If anything, these are uh, a group of people who have a history of underreacting to save face and then massively overreacting to make sure that they save power. Right. And when you put half a billion people into essentially a uh, curfew military state and you start contact tracing everybody using not just the government apparatus, but... Uh, cell phone companies and the big internet companies, they knew something that the rest of us didn't know. And so I just thought, wow, this thing is going to be a a tsunami that's hitting everybody. I didn't know the totality of it, but I just thought on balance, I was more afraid for myself and my family to keep them safe. Now it turns out that my focus is shifting very quickly to not the pandemic itself, although we should talk about it. It's um, the economic fallout of this is going to be probably... 10 to 100 times the magnitude. Right. I think we do need to talk about that. We have a lot of things. Let's just talk about uh, how Silicon Valley is reacting from a, from a, the pandemic point of view. I don't want to talk about contact tracing and some other things that people are suggesting should be happening more aggressively and the worries about big companies like Facebook, where you'd worked and other places, how much information they have and how it should be utilized. So let's talk about sort of the attitude in Silicon Valley. You've been doing investing. You've been doing uh, SPACs. You've been doing all kinds of things. How has that shifted? I mean, the investing landscape is done. Mm-hmm. done. So it's done. done. What do you mean done? It's done. Forever? No, but for, um, look, I think that before people start to put money back to work, two things have to happen. The first is that we need to reach a psychological bottom in the public markets. We haven't done that yet. And then when we've hit a psychological bottom in the public markets, we need to hit a psychological bottom in the private markets. And we haven't even started that process. Those things will take probably nine months 
for us to get through it. And in that, I think that there's going to be a lot of really hard things that um, investors will need to internalize. A lot of paper profits have evaporated. And a lot of uh, allocate startups. This isn't startup valuation. No, no, no. These, these are the people with the money, the hedge with funds, money. Right, right. The, or the sorry, the private equity funds and the uh, and the venture funds. All these groups that have been putting money into startups have been doing it on paper markups, mm-hmm. meaning you put money in, and it's sort of what I've talked about before, which is this Ponzi scheme here. Somebody else puts in money at a higher valuation. You mark it up. It looks like you're making money, and then you use that as a reason to raise more money from people. Now. Those people who have given you money are in a very difficult situation because their liquid investments have fallen in value by 30% to 70 or 80%. Their other illiquid investments are also now under severe duress, meaning the sophisticated investor that gave a venture capital firm money has also given money to public hedge funds, public uh, fixed income funds, real estate, private equity. Now think of all of those organizations. All of those organizations, every single one, operate on leverage. They take money, they borrow money, they put it to work. The first fallout of this uh, economic crisis that we're seeing because of corona is just the complete seizing of the credit markets. And when we figure out the totality of that damage, what it really is going to mean is that asset values have just eviscerated. For example, like think if you're, um, you know, I'll give you a simple example. Think if you're an investor in a tier one class A commercial real estate. Let's say that all you've ever done is bought fabulous, beautiful Park Avenue, Central Park View real estate, and you gave it to, and I'll use a law firm that I use probably the top-notch securities law firm in the world, uh, Skadden Arps. I pay these guys millions of dollars a year. They do an incredible job for me. Incredible. They're the best of the best. Well, Skadden Arps has been even more productive for me during corona. And the first thing that I'm going to do after this is all said and done, when I talk to the guys at Skadden, is I'm going to say, I'm willing to keep paying you millions because you've done a great job for me. But I noticed that you guys were as or more productive working remotely than you were when you were in your $1,000 a square foot real estate on Park Avenue. Why don't you guys just- What do I need that crap? Move move that garbage to, just just get out of the lease, cut my rates by 15% or 20%, and I'll pay you more. Which means commercial real estate is not worth anything near that. Right, the, I was thinking about that. But people can work at home now if and you, actually if, like it. If you owned REITs that owned restaurant- exposure or big mall infrastructure, those are not going to be the same. If you owned uh, private equity interests that needed capital markets and needed debt to make the whole thing work, that's no longer work. So when all of that sorts itself out, now that investor looks at venture capital and says, you want me to put more money into an illiquid property? The rest of my portfolio is off 30 to 50%, 60%. And so when that happens, the venture investor will feel pressure and then they will re-rate. So this is what I mean by we need to first see a psychological bottom in the public markets. That means equities, fixed income. Then we need to see a bottom in private equity and real estate. Only then can we see a, a, a bottom in venture. And between now and then, 
if you're out there swashbuckling around trying to do deals and pretend you're a hotshot, you're just going to get yourself fucking decapitated. What happens then? What is going on with startups right now? I think that people need to make hard decisions to conserve at least 36 months of cash. And if you're not doing that, you're not giving yourself enough of a buffer for all of this to sort itself out. So take the Great Depression or take any recession. For every month that you're in the drawdown phase, the part of going down, it takes two to three months to get back up. So if this takes nine months to sort itself out, we're, we're in month one. So it could be eight more months. Then it's going to take 27 months to get out. So unless you're giving yourself 36 months of runway, you put yourself in a position where you will be at the behest of the price maker. Right, whatever the valuation would be, right? Or whatever the cost would be. Exactly, and that's right. going to be hard money. Right. I mean, make no mistake, you're going to see recaps 10, 20, 30 cents on the dollar. Last night, I saw Airbnb float this trial balloon that said that venture capitalists and private equity firms were lining out the door to give them anywhere between 100 million to a billion. And I thought, wow, those guys have a lot of courage. God bless them. But if it were me, I would think to myself, well, the price is at least 30 to 40% off. And that's just broadly based before you look at the specific industry that Airbnb is in. So there was some data yesterday where the... the 50% in the US, off, off, well, the, off. The yeah. supply has completely gone away because a bunch of people had mortgages. They need to meet those mortgages. And so they're taking the inventory off of Airbnb and they're trying to find renters. All of a sudden, the rental volume in Dublin alone increased by 33% overnight. So you have all these second and third order effects that have to wash out before you can price the equity fairly. That's just one company. That's not to pick on Airbnb. So my point is every company has these second and third order implications. And so if you're not going to take the time to figure those out, you are more than likely going to misprice. So you, you would wait, you would wait. Well, you do what Charlie Munger says, which is you can buy now, but you need a safety, a margin of safety where even if you misprice it, it's okay. So, I mean, would I give Airbnb equity at 10 cents of the valuation? Of course, you, you're not going to lose money there. But if you're trying to get cute with valuation, you could be right, you could be wrong. And for me, for example, like look at, you know, the deal that happened uh, with Twitter. You know, the folks that put in a billion dollars into Twitter did it in a convert that yielded 6% at a $42 or $43 convert price. The stock is a mid-20s stock price and it could go down to the teens. Mm -hmm. Things change fast in moments like this. So that money that, that they put in. You do now. not get paid to be a hero. Right. There right. is no hero premium. There's only schmuck insurance and then looking and feeling like an idiot. That's so it. Those are the only two things. Right, what would you do with Twitter now? I know you've looked at it before. What would you do? Buy low or what's the, you, now you put oh, in the not, billion? I'm not going to touch it. Not going to touch it. I'm why? not touching anything. Kara, not touch anything. Kara last year. Not Kara, do not touch anything. Kara, Kara, last, way, year, last year. Stop touching things. Look, at last year, I made $1.7 billion. Mm -hmm. I did one deal. I put almost $800 million into Virgin. I kept my Slack. I have three positions in the public markets, Virgin Galactic, Slack, and Amazon. By some fate or miracle, those things have not felt the same drawdown as everything else. Well, Slack is being used heavily. Otherwise, I, I just am, interviewed Stuart. Yeah, otherwise, I am completely in cash and I'm waiting. And I'm hoping to put it to work. 
And I think that this will be, you know, one of the few buying opportunities of my lifetime. But we're in the fourth week. Right. So when is the buying opportunity from your, and I don't want you to give away all your things. No, if you, you, if you look at the Great Depression, there's a lot of uh, value there. Mm-hmm. in learning. And if you look at the great financial crisis, there's a lot of value there. Let me tell you what I've learned about both. So the Great Depression is instructive for the following reason. Number one, you had to forget what the cause was. And today, people still don't know what the cause was. If you take the Keynesian model, they say it's a demand shock. If you take the you know, the, the supply side model, people will say it was a bank run of the banks. It doesn't matter. The result was 20 to 25% unemployment, a 15% reduction in GDP, 10 years of deflation, okay? But you also had some good things. Roosevelt, the New Deal, and then eventually the economy started to get out, but you needed 10 years and then a world war. Mm -hmm. That's scary. Right. Then you look at the great financial crisis, and what you saw was a drawdown of 30%. 2008. 2008. 2008. Right. Then the market stabilized for about a month or a month and a half, And then the next wave of bad news came and you had another drawdown. The market bottomed at almost minus 50% before you saw a rally and that whole process took nine months. So what I would tell you is if you put the two together, there are some clear similarities. We will likely have the GDP effects of the Great Depression. We will likely have short-term unemployment of the Great Depression. And we will probably have the market behavior of the great financial crisis. And you put those two things together means that we are at the beginning of the beginning. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that people have to do is to deal, I think, with the emotional uh, upheaval and the realization around the crisis of health. But when you do that, that's just phase one. Then you can shift your attention to the second and third order effects, which I think will be one to two orders of magnitude Uh, more perilous for the world, which are all of the fallouts when you have broad-based unemployment and economic distress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the much, much bigger problem that we have to face. And it creates an enormously difficult set of discussions that you have to have the pragmatism around which you may have to deal with this disease because the, the game theory now is the disease is entering its a phase where you have two paths. Path number one is if you have the discipline to quarantine the entire world for effectively two weeks and distance ourselves by six feet, every man, woman, and child, everywhere in the world, it would nip it in the bud. Right. But in the absence of that, you have to then do some sort of forced quarantine on a rolling basis. The other side of the coin, which now you're starting to see emerge, yep. is the scary pragmatism that says, get people back to work right away because they're right. starting to realize- trying. Yeah, and if that means people die, that means people what, die. What, and essentially the underlying thing that they're saying is, well, what is the true cost of one life versus the economic impact of trillions of dollars and, you know, mass unemployment and all of that stuff and bread lines? Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is a scary trade-off here. Right. It's incredible 100%. that we- I was just thinking that. They're like, they don't care about the dying. That's what they're saying. They're saying, essentially, we're going to trade off a couple million old people. Or, or older, or people that are just happen to get it. Well, I would that. be, I would be very cautious. In fact, I would just be cautious in saying everybody has a confirmation bias in a moment of mm-hmm. panic. We all want to hear what makes us feel better. Right. The young everybody. want to feel it's the old. You know, the the healthy wants to feel it's the people with comorbidities. 
And I think when we look back retrospectively, the, the truth will be told in history no other time. And it'll look like it touched a lot of us. Yeah, 100%. That's what I'm saying. It just, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be sort of the luck of the draw kind of thing in terms of... But I think with, with the recent tweets by conservatives especially, it's been like, let's just, let's just throw the dice on some people dying. That's what I am, which I'm hearing. Because more will die of economic distress, I think, or more will suffer because of it. Well, I, th- I think that, that that is true. Right. I think if you factor in suicide, domestic violence, separation, drug addiction... Other illnesses. Other illnesses, and you, you add that all together. And then if you want to look over a five or 10-year period, it'll be devastating. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So therefore, let's get back to the economic thing. So there'll be no investment in Silicon Valley. There's all this, there's no money. to. Well, like I said, I think there's a lot of people with dry powder. I think there are people that are raising funds as we speak. Um, Again, I would just say that the people that are doing deals right now are mostly honoring their obligations of deals that they did pre-crisis. Right. So okay. there were a handful of things that we've committed to. We honored those commitments and we said, great, you know, let's do it. Um, but in terms of like incremental capital in a moment like this, um, it seems pretty irresponsible. Right, to put it to work. Other than telling your companies to batten down the hatches, and I've told people 36 months. Thanks again to Chamath Palihapitiya for coming on Recode Decode so many times. And thank you for listening. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. And my producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. And don't forget to subscribe to Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway for our fresh conversations about tech, business, and more every week. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. We'll be back here with another Best of Recode Decode episode on Monday. Tune in then. HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots so you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO needs so much more. Start streaming now at hbomax.com. Listener.